And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Of all the work that I do, I think the most important work is helping first-time investors do it right from as close to day one as we can get. I know that most of you, uh, as well as myself, probably wasted a number of years where you had an opportunity to save some money, but the investment decisions were certainly not the kinds of investment decisions you would make if you had it to do all over again. And at, at least once a week, I hear somebody say, I wish I had known this a long time ago. And what I'm working at is making sure that these young people today uh, won't say that 40 years from now, that they will have learned today what they need to know for the rest of their investing life. In this presentation uh, about the 12 lessons we must teach first-time investors, I searched through dozens of lists. I love lists, and so I, I, I read lists that, that uh, talked about what investors should do if they're investing in stocks, what they should do if they're investing in mutual funds, what they should do if they're investing in a 401k. But all of the focus was on that first-time investor. What shocked me? is how bad, I mean really bad, some of that uh, advice was or is. And I'm going to actually do um, a, another podcast in the future about the bad advice. Remember what uh, Warren Buffett told us? To be a success, you only have to do a very few things right as long as you don't do too many things wrong. And I think it's important to teach both the right and the wrong, because as I read that advice to the young person that's really bad, to a young person, I'm sure it sounds right. So I'll get to that another day. But for today, I want to focus on what I believe the most important lessons are that we need to teach young people about investing. Now, we all know that investing goes nowhere if we don't have the ability to save. And I really am not uh, an expert on saving. Uh, in fact, I, I just this morning before I sat down to record this podcast, took a walk around Battle Point Park with Jolene Godfrey, who is the author of a book entitled Raising Financially Fit Kids. I absolutely love the way she put this together. She breaks down the, the stages of, of, of life, uh, uh, all different stages. Here's 13 to, to 15. Uh, and, and when you look at the 13 to 15, you open up one of these things that expands, folds out, and here is from ages 13 to 15, the 10 basic money skills, how to save, how to get paid what you're worth, 
how to spend wisely, how to talk about money, how to live on a budget, how to invest, how to exercise the entrepreneurial spirit, how to handle credit, how to use money to change the world, how to be a citizen of the world. And under each one of these are the actions that a 13 to 15-year-old should be taught and the resources the uh, that one can access to do that. Valuable, valuable book, uh, Raising Financially Fit Kids. This is not my expertise. In fact, I made a point to Jolene as we were talking about how we might be able to work together. Uh, I made the point that I want her to know I am not a financial planner. I'm an investment guy. So I know investing, and she knows helping young people become financially literate and others out there no financial planning. So what I'm focusing on here today is not the work that Jolene does or not what the financial planner does, but I want to focus just on those investment decisions. I wrote a book. It's free at paulmerriman.com, free as an ebook. Uh, entitled 101 Investment Decisions Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future. And I mean that, absolutely guaranteed to change your financial future. The guarantee I will not make because I can't make because I can't see into the future is whether or not it will be for the better. It could be that my advice could be wrong, and something else will happen in the future. Maybe bonds will do better than stocks. I can't know that, but as I look at those 101 decisions, my view is that what I've concluded is the right path is what would be uh, considered uh, uh, best practices by almost everybody in the industry that's not taken a commission because the minute they start taking a commission, somehow they start they start going a different direction in order to make a living. So I am about what is the best for you. Nobody else. So these 12 decisions, fork in the road, if you will, that we, we all are going to make them. We all make them whether we like it or not, or not. We do it by design or we do it by default. My job is to get you to do it by design. So let me walk you through these, uh, these 12 uh, decision points. Uh, and, uh, and I'll get back at the end a little more on saving because uh, it is obviously the base of all of this work. But the first decision, once you have some money saved, is whether you're going to, and by the way, I, sh- I, should, I should add this, I'm talking about the long term here. I'm not talking about the decisions that you're going to make with money that you need in a week or a month or even a year because that money should not be at risk. I'm talking about money that people believe you should take some risk. And uh, as you know, a lot of my work is about helping people determine how much risk to take. But I'm talking here about a first-time investor. So I feel pretty aggressive about knowing what is in their best interest for the long term. So here is that fork in the road. 
put your money into stocks or put your money into bonds. With stocks, you own a part of a company. And if the company does well, you could make thousands of percent. If the company fails, you could lose everything. When you invest in a bond, then it's a loan, in essence, to the company. And so they may promise to pay you 5%, and if the company does well, I'm sorry, all you get is 5%. Now, here's what I know, and I think to help you and help our children, first-time investors, make the right decision. They need to understand more than just one way you can own a company, another way you end up loaning to a company. What's the long-term impact of that decision? And what we know about the past is that if you put $100 away today, and in 40 years, you made a 10% compound rate of return that you would have grown that $100 to over $4,250. And if that same $100 had achieved a 4% compound rate of return in bonds, you would have about $400. Now, that 10% compound rate of return is basically what the stock market, and I'm talking about the larger, big public companies, that's what they've achieved since about 1928. If you go back 50 years, it even gets better. But the 10% is commonly assumed to be a good long-term compound rate of return for a broadly diversified equity portfolio. Now, I've always got to say, I'm not going to say it every time, but I want to say it right here. Who knows what return the future will get? How much we will make in the future, but we do know this from the past. There is a very high probability that you'll get, over the long term, better returns with stocks than with bonds. Now, we'll talk about bonds in another podcast, but for you young first-time investors, I certainly want you to be thinking stocks for the long term. So that's a huge decision. Decision number two. Do you make the decision to put all your money in one company, one stock, or do you put it in many companies. Now, let me just tell you what the academics tell us. This is an important consideration. I trust the academics are working for us. And one of their beliefs is the expected rate of return of any single company is the average of all companies that are similar to it. And by similar, I mean whether they're growth companies or value companies, large companies, small companies. I'm not going to define these all right now. We certainly have in articles. uh, In fact, look under the performance uh, link at paulmerriman.com, and you can read tons of information about the performance of the big and the small and the value and the growth and the U.S. and the international. 
But the bottom line is the, the academics expect one company, let's call it large growth, one company is expected to make the average of a thousand. But that one company has a risk that the thousand don't have. The one company has the risk that it fails. Now, public companies are not built to fail. They're built to succeed. But some do fail. I happen to live in the Pacific Northwest where we, we lost Washington Mutual. It went out of business. Enron, it went out of business. Eastern Airlines, it went out of business. Going out of business is not unheard of, but when you invest in one company, you take a lot of risk of that one company going out of business. But what are the probabilities of a thousand companies going out of business? Well, if they do, we got a we got a big, big problem. So when you look at this fork in the road, one company versus many companies. When you invest in the many companies, you diversify the, away the risk of owning one company, but there is an expectation that you're going to end up with the same return. And when you can virtually eliminate this huge kind of either winner-take-all or loser-lose-all risk, that, that's a huge step forward in terms of being a savvy, productive lifetime investor. Now, I might add that mutual funds uh, are the way to access the thousand companies. Most of us, when we're getting started, there's no way we would know how to put together a portfolio of a thousand companies. But a mutual fund can take as little as a hundred dollars and diversify it just as the person who puts in a million dollars. It's probably one of the few places in the investment process that the smallest amongst us are treated just as royally as the largest. So we've started with stocks over bonds, and now we're picking a portfolio of many companies rather than one. Diversification. Point number three, decision number three, lesson number three. Do you want to put all of your money, many stocks, yes, many stocks, but into one industry, or do you want your money to be diversified into many industries? And I don't know anybody, anybody who's an expert on investing that says, you know, the smart thing to do is to, is to find the best industry for the future. And to and 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 to and to put your money into that one industry. Oh, they want you to buy several companies, but but you should try to find that area that has the greatest expected growth. And for what it's worth, if you look at the technology index going back to the early seventies, 
where you could participate in these hot, hot industries, whether it's biotech or software or whatever that hot industry might be. That index has a lower compound rate of return than buying the doggy old normal big companies, public companies that uh, that we see in our life every day from Procter & Gamble to, to DuPont to GE. Uh, not not necessarily the high tech. No, high tech has not, in fact, produced that great return that a lot of people think they have. So, diversification, many industries. And I know people who put all their money, or most of their money, in one industry. A lot of them in the banking industry thinking that was really a, a safe place to be. And, of course, you may know what happened in 2000. Eight in 2009, it turned out not to be so safe and, and wiped a lot of people out. Number four, decision number four, lesson number four, point number four, important fork in the road. Put your money, your diversified portfolio of many industries, many stocks, into all very large companies or maybe some in large and some in small, some in growth, some in value. Now, what is it? What's the implication of value? What is value? I think you've probably got a good picture of what growth would be. Those would be the companies that are popular, companies that are assumed to be doing well now and doing well into the future. Value companies are companies that are kind of dogs. They're not so exciting. In fact, the marketplace doesn't want to pay very much for their shares. And interestingly enough, it turns out that those value companies, kind of the unwanted of the moment, end up producing a better return in the long run than those very popular growth companies. Now, I'm not suggesting you throw the growth companies out. But I am suggesting that it would be good to put some value and to put some smaller companies into the portfolio. Another level of diversification. Another level of continuing to protect yourself while putting together a portfolio that is actually expected to produce a better long-term return. And boy, does that have implications to you young folks, you first-time investors. Number five. Okay, we've, we've, we've got it built up from many stocks rather than one, uh, many industries rather than one, uh, many asset classes rather than one. But now you need to make the decision do you want it to be all U.S., or would there be value in spreading the risk amongst not just these U.S. asset classes and industries, but also international asset classes and industries? And it turns out that all of the research from the past, and here's that past that we can't reproduce necessarily, but looking backward, it appears as if by adding the internationals to the portfolio, 
that you further diversify, you further reduce the overall risk and volatility, and again, give yourself a chance for another bump up in terms of return. So we just talked about of the 10 things that I think are the most important decisions of your investing career is all about diversification. It's not about being aggressive, really. I mean, stocks, equities are aggressive. They're more volatile than bonds, of course. But in the area of equities and stocks, this broader diversification is a defensive step, not an aggressive offensive step. So now let's look beyond diversification. And what is there that we can do to further reduce risk and take more steps to make more money in the long term? Uh, there's an article that... Uh, that I wrote some months back about uh, the implication of making another half of 1%. And let me give you the bottom line to, to you first-time investors. Now, I've talked to a lot of university classes. Um, I teach on a quarterly basis, once a quarter for two hours. And I always try to get a feeling from those uh, students as to what they think their financial future looks like in terms of in it, of earnings. And most of them seem to think that by the time they're 25, they should probably be making uh, 50000 or more uh, in what they're doing. I know a, a, a young man who just graduated uh, and he's going into a technology field. He just got he got a bachelor's science, and 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 his his starting wage is over a hundred thousand uh, dollars. So I don't think. By the way, that's a, obviously a very good starting wage. But I know lots of other uh, people. A, a first-time teacher I just uh, spoke with. Uh, and she is getting over $50,000, and she's not yet uh, 25. So the reason the twenty, the $50,000 is meaningful to me is because I'm hoping that these kids will put away 10% of what they make for their financial future, for the last third of their life, if we want to look at it like that. The money that you'll live on after you have retired and nobody's paying you anymore, so you got to pay yourself. And here's the interesting thing about that 10% number. Let's say they never got a raise. They worked, got paid $50,000 for 40 years, and then they retired. And every year they put away 10% or $5,000. And let's say they made 8% uh, over that 40 years much less, 20% less than the stock market has made over the last almost 90 years. So $5,000 a year at 8%, they will retire with about a million three. And if they could get 8.5%, an extra half of 1%, they would get about a million six. 
And then they start living off of this money in retirement and taking out money every year. And then let's say they live to be 95. And then they pass on and they leave something to their heirs. But leave it or not, the difference between what you would spend in retirement and leave to your heirs at 8% versus 8.5% is 1.8 million dollars because you made an extra half a percent. So as I talk about these other forks in the road, I want you to keep in mind that anytime you can find an extra one half of one percent, in fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pass up an extra quarter of one percent if I could do it without taking any more risk. That would be for your life and those of your heirs. Potentially, a lot more money to use and to share with others. So, what are the what are those forks in the road that could, in fact, lead to? an extra half of 1%. Well, let me talk about those mutual funds. And this is point number five, lesson number five. Mutual funds, these, these, these businesses that accumulate, in some cases, billions and billions some have over $100 billion in them that are being managed professionally for you. And they have an internal expense ratio. They don't do it for nothing. This is, this is not a, a gift. But believe it or not, some charge over 1% while others charge one-tenth of 1%. Now think about that. There you are. Looking at this fork in the road, you're 20 to 25 years old, and you're about to make a decision that in one case, you're going to make probably an extra half a percent just by picking the one that has the lower expenses. Now, how difficult is that to decide? Well, wait a minute, Mr. Merriman, you might say, not so fast there, because there must surely be evidence that those funds that have the higher expenses are somehow doing something special for their shareholders that means that they make up, not only make up that half a percent difference in the expense ratio, but even make more. And it just isn't so. Oh, maybe two or three out of a hundred will do better over a long period of time. That's what the studies show. That's what the academic work shows. And some of you may actually believe, well, you know, something I'm smarter than other people. I can pick that 2 or 3% and make an extra half a percent even beyond what the end of these mutual funds would make that have lower expenses. So I wouldn't bet on that. That would not be a bet that would be a reasonable gamble if you were a betting person. You'd be betting on the one that charges one-tenth of one percent rather than the one that charges one percent and sometimes more. Now, number six, it's another expense item. 
some of these uh, mutual funds, and I haven't mentioned them. I don't want to confuse the issue too much because it, it, it isn't part of this particular presentation. But there's something that looks very much like a mutual fund. It's called an exchange-traded fund. It is, in fact, basically a, a, a mutual fund that you can buy and sell very similarly to the regular mutual fund. But they both have something in common. You can buy them and pay somebody a commission to have the right of uh, uh, to, to, to enter the fund and to have the managers take care of the money for you. That commission has nothing to do with the managers. In fact, you could have a manager that manages two mutual funds one has a commission, and another one has zero commission. Same manager. So this is not about finding a way to hire smarter people. This is a decision, and this is huge, that you are going to somehow learn the basics of investing, that you won't need somebody to help pick the fund for you and pay that commission that commission with mutual funds is called a load. There are no load funds. There are load funds. The no loads have no commission. The load funds do have a commission. Look up the definition of load in the dictionary. A heavy burden. And boy, is it heavy because the Long-term cost of that load in equity funds, stock funds, is about one-half of 1% a year. And that's on top of the other half a percent I already talked about by having lower expenses. So there's the entry fee, the commission, and the operating fee, the expense ratio. You can manage both of those to your advantage. Now, point number seven. Lesson number seven. Important decision number seven. And that is that some mutual funds are actively managed and others are passively managed. The passively managed funds are what are called normally index funds. Uh, the actively managed funds don't have a special title like that, but what happens is the manager inside of those funds, and they're paid a lot of money, in fact, it's one of the reasons that some funds are a lot more expensive because the manager is bebing, uh, bobbing and weaving and buying and selling and trying to do things to improve the return. Whereas the index fund says, hold it, hold it, hold it. Let me understand what you're trying to achieve as an investor. Is it your desire to participate in the long-term growth of corporate America, whether it be big companies or small companies or value or growth or international, is it, is it your desire to participate in that return that has historically been 10% or more? 
uh, or do you want to pay a, a, a premium, a lot of money, to hire somebody to try to trade the market? Now, here's the, here's the double trouble about that, how they get you twice. One is those mutual funds that have the high expense ratio. One of the reasons they have a high expense ratio is because they have somebody who's doing that trading. They have to have a person who claims to be very smart and can beat the market. Because if you can't beat the market, why would you want to overpay somebody to try to do that for you when you can be the market inside of an index fund? And there is very little evidence as I said earlier, 2-3% over a long period of time. But in the process of getting in and out of the market, what happens is there's another whole level of expenses. It's called turnover expenses. And in some funds, that can cost you a half a percent a year. I mean, they're coming at you from every direction, trying to pick you off for a half a percent here, a half a percent there, and more of those half a percents if you're not careful. And all of that is impacting you for the rest of your life. Now there's another expense, number eight. This point, this lesson, this decision has to do with whether you're going to manage the expenses of taxes. Taxes. And taxes, depending on how much money you make in your life, uh, whatever you're doing for a living, are going to likely be a big item. And I think about that young fellow who was making over $100,000 just out of college. And I'm going to assume he is going to get some raises along the way. Which means he's likely, and if I remember, he's living in a state where they have a state income tax on top of everything else. So what does he want to do to be smart? He wants to do the same thing you want to do. He wants to put his long-term money someplace where the, the returns are either tax-deferred or get this tax-free, and not only tax-free to grow for the next 40 years, but when you finally decide to live off of that money to, to, to retire, to, to cash in your chips and pay yourself for the rest of your life, you can invest as a young person so that that money grows tax-free for 40 years and then you take it out for the rest of your life, and it is tax-free. And maybe, depending on tax regulations, it will even be free to your heirs. Big decision. Big, huge decision. And, and, and this is normally done for the majority of people through a 401k plan that you invest in through your company. And they access the mutual funds on your behalf. And they will have choices between active and passive. They will have choices between expensive and cheap. They will have choices between value and growth. And they'll put that all together and you'll choose the funds that, that meet your long-term needs. 
And my hope for you is whatever company you go to work for, that you will have all those choices. I don't care if they want to offer expensive ones. That's up to them. But I sure as heck hope that they also offer the index funds for you to take advantage of the low-cost, broadly diversified access to equities. But you can manage the taxes. You can give it away, taxes, or you can keep it. Now, I, I'm not anti-tax. I mean, we, we have a society to run, and it seems like charging taxes, making people pay taxes, is a reasonable way to have to do this. But we want you to take advantage of what the government has set up for this very reason. They want to make sure you have a retirement Number nine. This is this is uh, uh, this is a difficult one. I talked to a lot of young uh, students, some recently graduated, others in the middle of of uh, their courses. Um, I, I, it is wonderful to be able to talk to the the students who are taking my course at Western and find out what's going on in their life. And I find a lot of students are heavily burdened. They do have a load of debt that most of us, when I went to, to university, I didn't have to, to graduate with a bunch of debt. I, I hardly knew anybody who graduated with much debt. In fact, you could work a few hours a week and cover most of your expenses. And in those days, parents had the money to help a lot of students. Today, I don't think as many parents can help as they did uh, back in the 60s when I went through that. And I talk about this debt, and then, you know, what do you do? Do you pay off your debt as soon as you can, and then after all that debt is paid off, you start investing for your financial future? Well, it's kind of a case-by-case -case situation, but certainly for any debt that has a reasonable cost to it, I tell young students and, and people coming out of uh, college to 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 pay off the minimum pay the minimum make sure you have money to fund your 401k or an individual retirement account for people who do not have uh, the the 401k available which means it's going to take you longer to pay off that debt but you need to understand those early Early years of saving are life changers when you finally get to retirement. If we look at that magic 40-year period from basically 25 to 64, and uh, you start putting away money the first five years immediately, and you invest for 40 years, and let me just, for the sake of making this simple, assume that you're able to put away $5,000 a year. You do the $5,000 a year over the 40 years, and let's say instead of making 10%, you make 8%. So at that point, at the 40-year point, at 5000 a year for 40 years, you got about a million three. And then 
You live off of that money for the rest of your life compared to somebody else. And remember what that means. If you take out 5% the first year that you retire, you're going to take out $65,000. But let's say you waited five years and you only contributed for 35 years. $25,000 difference, five times 5000 same rate of return, but at the end of the 35 years, you have 861000 You made about 50% more because you, you added over 400000 because you invested an additional 25000 In fact, if a person knew they were likely to inherit a bunch of money later in life from parents who... We're fortunate enough to, to, to do well enough that you know they might be able to help you with those first five years because you just plain can't. I'd be talking to them. I'd be guaranteeing that I'd never take that money out. But if they would help you just that first five years, it's going to potentially mean a difference of um, four or $500,000. So start as early as you can. And uh, forget that 5000 by the way. If all you can start with is $50 a month, do $50 a month. I'm hoping you'll be able to do more. It is fascinating to me that if you look at the 10 countries that are the best savers, in terms of disposable income, after they pay their taxes, how much do they save of what they have left? What they save is between 10 and 20% a year. If you look at what Americans save, U.S. citizens save about 5% a year. And that's sad. One of the things also should be mentioned is the tax rate for for those uh, folks is is in those other ten countries is higher. I think in every country higher than the U.S. But we just don't have a great saving attitude. So my hope is that you you will start early. And looking at point number 10, decision number 10, lesson number 10, here's Ben Franklin. Look at that kindly little chubby face suggesting over 200 years ago that you should put away 10% of everything you make for the future. Now, there's an attitude you might want to add to Ben Franklin's advice. I would like to combine Ben's advice with Warren's advice. That would be Warren Buffett. Because what Warren Buffett says, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, is rather than saving what's left over after spending, spend what's left over after saving. Now, Ben Franklin, I think, would would, would agree with that that you, in essence, make the commitment first and foremost to save whatever that percentage is, and you can spend the rest. Now, that's always a big decision, whether 
you know, you, you save all of it for the long term? Do you save for for a house down payment? I mean, that's a that's a whole other conversation that you need to have with somebody who's an expert in this area. Hopefully, somebody who is well versed in that uh, in that arena and is free. What a combination that is for you. But that number 10 is big. How much? What's that percentage? But if I had to come up with an absolute minimum, I'm talking absolute minimum, do everything you possibly can to hit this minimum. A lot of companies today that used to put money aside for a pension for you as an employee, today they don't do pensions. I think maybe less than 20% of major corporations have pensions anymore. When I came into the industry after I retired, retired, graduated uh, from uh, from the university, uh, it was, I think, close to 80% of the large corporations had pensions. No more. Oh, but what they're willing to do is to match what you put up. If you put up 4% or 5%, they'll match that. They'll match the first 3 4 5%. Maybe sometimes it's 2%, but at an absolute minimum, it's costing you a fortune not to at least put in up to that match. If you can't, you need to be real creative. Now, point number 11, lesson number 11. Sometimes the market goes down, and it feels like it's bad. Who wants to be there when the market's going down? They, they call that, if the market goes down 20% or more, they call that a bear market. Well, a bear market is bad for me. I'm 72 if I had all my money in stocks and the market went down 50% because that's what it does from time to time, maybe once every 10, 20 years, sometimes it will go literally decades without a major bear market. And then sometimes like 2000 through 2009, it happened twice. But for the young person who started working in 2000, for them to be able to invest and buy stocks on sale, on sale for low prices, they've actually done well if they stayed the course and kept investing and if they diversified. So... My goal for you is when that market is down and dirty, that your attitude is not that of your grandparents or your parents who are crying the blues. No, you're celebrating. You don't want to tell your parents and grandparents you're celebrating, but you are celebrating because it's an opportunity that you may never get again in a lifetime if you were smart enough and disciplined enough during the major market declines of the late 60s and early 70s 
and it was terrible. People were saying, get out of the market and stay out. The investing into the stock market is the craziest. It's like gambling. It's like speculating. It's like throwing your money away. And then from 1975 to 1999, the S&P 500, that large cap growth index, compounded at over 17%. And the small cap value, another asset class you can learn about in my book, First Time Investor, Grow and Protect Your Money. It's free at paulmerriman.com. That asset class compounded at over 22% for 25 years. But if you didn't take advantage of the bear markets of the late 60s and early 70s, you passed up one of the great opportunities of a lifetime. And by the way, that's happened several times over the last 100 years. So please... Don't panic. Now, if you're 50 or 60 years old, you don't want to have all your money in equities. But if you're in your 20s and maybe even up until you're 35 or 40, I think all equities is the right way to go. Number 12. I would love for every young person I can reach to understand all of the advantages of doing it right, of having your money in equities early on, of moving slowly to bonds as you get older, and to diversifying between large and small and value and growth and U.S. and international. And my own portfolio, I've got somewhere close to 15,000 stocks in my portfolio. And people can do that now with about $1,000. Believe it or not, you can diversify to where you have thousands and thousands of companies with only a $1,000 investment. But I know from experience that there are people who simply don't want to deal with the decisions that come with building a portfolio, and in essence, managing, even though it's a few minutes a year, managing those mutual fund picks to stay the course. And for those that are really interested in that, uh, if you read my Ultimate Buy and Hold Strategy uh, article or my Fine Tuning Your Asset Allocation article, I've done lots of articles on how to build that portfolio properly and to manage it. Now, what about the the bulk of you who probably don't even want to listen to this podcast? What you can do is you can put your money into a target date fund. And that target date fund is being managed by people who believe they know how to balance a portfolio for the age you are. Now, they're not going to care about what date you want to retire. That's up to you. You name the date. Let's say you figured you wanted to retire around 2060. 
there's a fund for people who want to retire in 2060. Now, it would be foolish for somebody who wants to retire next year to invest in the target date fund that that's built for those retiring in 2060 because that means the person who's going to retire next year would have almost all their money in equities. That would not be bright unless they had a lot of money. But as you get older, they will go from mostly equities to less and less and less. And although I think you might be able to pick up an extra 1%, um, I, I do think that for those that don't want to fool with it, just let it go. To think that you could invest in one mutual fund and never have to make another investment decision for the rest of your life except how much to save, how to save, and how much to take out when it's time to take it out. And they let you take it out monthly or quarterly or annually or never at all. So target date funds are something that the, uh, I'm not going to call you lazy, but just don't want to be bothered thinking about it. I know lots of people, friends of mine, that have absolutely no interest in spending an evening with me talking about investing. All they want to do is have somebody else do it. Now, I will leave you with um, a suggestion. Um, there probably, in, in every business, there's somebody that folks think um, are the, they're the best. And if I had to pick one company of all the companies that offer mutual funds, load and no load, if I had to pick one company, I would pick Vanguard. Their target date funds are very good, very, very inexpensive. Using index funds, using broad diversification. Now, there are things about their target date funds that leave something to the possibilities. I think you could make a lot more if you just do one Thing. If you would just do one more thing for the rest of your life. And you can read about that in an article. I believe the title is uh, How to, to Double Your Target Date Fund in One Easy Step. And basically, instead of owning just one fund for the rest of your life, you own two. But whether you use Vanguard, I mean, uh, tax target date funds or just regular mutual funds, index funds, uh, Vanguard definitely gets uh, my vote uh, for the best in the business for individual uh, do-it-yourself investors. Well, this was uh, a long podcast. Uh, I'll... It was kind of a combination to mom and dad or grandpa and grandma. And plus, I know I also tried to speak to the young people who might listen to this. I'd be very interested in getting your feedback if you share this with a young person, how effective it was, whether you 
actually present the information yourself or you um, let them listen to what I've, uh, uh, I've shared, I'd like to know what kind of response. Did they stay awake for the whole hour? Uh, I also would hope that you would take a look at Raising Financially Fit Kids. It's the revised and updated version by Jolene Godfrey. I think Jolene might even write some articles for us, uh, not about how to invest. I got that one covered. But all of these topics about how we, uh, how we get our kids to learn to be better stewards, to not allow themselves to become uh, uh, pigeons for, um, uh, for the big corporations who are learning every day better and better how to, fig- how to f- figuring out how to strip us of our money. I'm a bit of a cynic, <laughs> and I apologize for, I don't hate corporations. I don't hate the idea of people selling things, but I know those people have little concern for whether the people they're selling to are doing the things they should to take care of themselves. I think you'll find this book uh, helpful, and I would really appreciate it if you do read Raising Financially Fit Kids. Uh, if, if you would be so kind as to drop me a note, tell me what you thought uh, of the book. So, a long podcast. Uh, I really care about, about trying to make this easier for our young people. Uh, and I'll be doing more uh, this year. I may even do a, a videotape uh, in the hopes of uh, reaching the kids maybe where they like to learn. All the best to you, all the best with your children, your grandchildren, and uh, keep listening. Bye. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.